0: Well, good morning, morning. and welcome to First Missionary Church. We are so glad you're here this morning, and I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, that's chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And while you're doing that, a couple things, Uh, you may notice we have these nifty little name tags, and so thank you for those that filled it out. Uh, If you haven't yet, you still have a chance, it really helps my family and I get to know you better. And I also think it helps you because, let's face it, some of you are probably past that point of asking somebody's name, you know? You feel really bad if you do. So this is your chance to know who they are instead of saying, hey, you. (laughs) So, and I also know whenever uh, we ask people to do something from the front, there's always that select few that are rebels and will never do what we ask. So, um, (laughs) So my advice to you is don't do it. All right. The second thing I want to say is tonight we have our what? Annual business. Yes, and everyone said, "Woohoo!" All right. This—I know when we think business, we think boring, but this is really important because the church is not my church or the deacons or the board or the staff. This is God's church, but it's also your church, and you have a chance to know what's going on, to ask questions. I mean, Ben Sprunger's leading it, so ask him really hard questions. He's not here, so I can say that. You know, we, um, we want you to come. We want you to be a part of what's going on and know what's going on. And I encourage you also to read the annual report. How many knew we had an annual report that's been put out? How many, I, dare, I don't know if I should ask this, how many have read it already? Wow, that's better than I expected, all right? Yeah, good. <laughs> well, we encourage you to, to read it and reread it and come tonight. And even if you have little kids, bring them. You know, I remember as a little kid getting dragged to everything with my parents. And, but it set a precedent that church was important. God's people were important. You know, it's, it's a sign of health. If there's kids making noise during the meeting, that's great. You know, if moms, if you have to give your kid the death stare during the meeting, praise the Lord. You know, that's part of a, <laughs> that's part of a healthy church. So we just encourage you to come, eat, and be a part of the meeting. All right, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, beginning of verse 1, this is about 700 years before Christ. Isaiah is ministering during a very difficult time in Israel's history. Verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, so this is Isaiah talking, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, those are angels. Each with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces, with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Verse five, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, uh, may the words of my mouth and my meditation be pleasing in your sight. May you open the eyes of our heart to hear and receive, and believe, and be changed. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're in a series right now talking about some critical priorities that we need to have as a church. And some of these, a lot of them are probably reminders for you. Last week, does anyone remember what the priority was that we talked about? The gospel, wonderful. Well, the second priority today, based on my title, is we need to be a church that regularly beholds the glory of God. We need to be a church that is constantly encountering God, beholding God's glory, lifting him high. And we're going to look at this idea today in four movements. How how do we actually do that? Well, Isaiah, this text, gives us a way that we actually encounter God. And the first movement, believe it or not, is an upward movement, I call, and and begins with who? God. If we're going to encounter God, it all starts with this upward movement towards God. So if you look in your text, Isaiah is at church. He's ministering in the Old Testament temple. He sees the Lord high and exalted. And this is such a a massive view of God that it says the train or the edge of his robe fills the temple. He also sees these angelic beings called seraphim. They have the privilege of being in the presence of the Lord. And we get the sense that they never stop, they never tire of worshiping God. They're constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now that word holy is significance. It's significant. How many times does it say it in your Bible? Three. There's a famous Hebrew scholar that says in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, that if the writers wanted to emphasize something, they would say, they would repeat a word. They would double it. So like in Genesis 14 it talks about um, these armies and they fell into pits, but in the Hebrew, it actually says they fell into pit pits, meaning that these aren't just pits, these are pity pits. I mean, these are the pittest of the pits. I mean, so in Hebrew, that's why it emphasizes that by doubling that word pits. But how many times is this word emphasized? Three. So it's not doubled, it's tripled. I mean, the writer wants us to know that God is holy, holy, holy. Do you know what that word holy means? I know it's kind of a churchy, religious word. We often think that it means that God is without sin, which is true. But at its most basic format, its most central aspect, holiness means that God is set apart, that God is in a class all by himself, that he is superior. Pastor Nate preached on Christ being supreme a couple weeks ago. That's the same idea. God's holiness is that he is Way above us, far above us. In fact, theologians call it his transcendence. Say that with me, transcendence. And it's not like he's even close to us. It's not like we're on the JV team and he's on the varsity team or something. You know, I can't even think of a good analogy, but it's almost like we're a a helpless newborn baby. Can't do anything for ourselves. And God is like this professional athlete in his prime and at the peak of his powers and he never loses them. I mean, that's kind of the gulf between us and God. And so Isaiah encounters God, and it all begins with God, that he is supreme, that there's no one like him. Just think of the difference between us and God. How many of you like to build something or create something with your hands? More power to you. That's awesome. Well, when you do that, you actually need materials to build something, don't you? But does God actually need materials to build and create something? No, he just simply says it and boom. Boom it's done. That'd be very nice for some of our house renovate. That'd be great, you know. God, just say it. Do it. <laughs> or think of the future. How many of you can predict the future? We struggle to do that. We can't predict the stock market. We can't even predict if there'll be a government shutdown or not, you know. I can't even predict if my Indiana Hoosiers will win, although most likely they'll lose based on the way they're playing. <laughs> we cannot predict the future, but Listen to what God says in the book of Isaiah later. He says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Or think of power. Sometimes we can be arrogant thinking we have lots of power and control and feel invincible. But listen to what Isaiah says about God's power. It says, God brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted than God just blows on them and they wither. That's how powerful our God is. So God is in a class all by himself. He's holy. And if you look at that verse carefully, where it says he's holy, verse three, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his what? Glory. Now you would expect it to say, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his holiness. So why does it switch to glory? How are holiness and glory Related. Well, I'm glad you asked. They go together. Huh? One theologian puts it like this. Holiness is the internal quality of what God is within himself. But glory is God taking his holiness and making it public for the world to see. He's showcasing his holiness in his glory so that all see that he is in a class way above us, all by himself. So this first movement, if we're going to be the kind of people that encounter God it all starts with realizing who God is, a massive, big, amazing God. We need desperately to know this. And my fear is that you and I, we forget this. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer this. Don't answer it out loud, at least. Answer it internally. (laughs) In this past week, how many of you beheld the glory of God in your personal life? How many of you were blown away by who God is just this last week? At least one time. Or was it a really busy week? Distracted week? And I get it, life's busy. But we need to behold God's glory regularly. Because I fear as a people, even as believers, God is often more of a concept, you know, a theory, an idea, rather than a reality, a deep reality. That word glory, do you know what it means? Technically, in the Old Testament, whenever that word glory shows up, it, it literally means weighty or heavy. When God's glory is present, it is like thick and heavy and weighty. In English, we often use the word matter. It matters, it's significant. Did God's glory matter in your life this past week at all or not? You know, let's think about God as a concept versus a reality and glory for a second. How do you know that God is more of a concept in your life than a reality? Well, let me give you some signs. When you pray, when you pray, do you ask God to bless your already decided plans? Or do you say, no, God, what are the plans? <laughs> There's a big difference. I, I'm not saying you shouldn't ask God to bless your plans. That's still a good prayer. But if that's the only way you pray, instead of saying, God, here's my life, here's my plans, then God may be more of a concept than a reality. Or think of the future. If you're younger, and I won't define what younger means, but how many of you would love to get married someday, have a spouse, have 2.5 kids, a white picket fence, you know, not suffer too much, have kids with straight teeth, you know, retire at a nice age, and then die in your sleep, you know, how many of that sounds like a pretty good life? (laughs) I have nothing against any of those things, by the way. Those are wonderful blessings. But if that is our only vision for the future, if you're younger, then I think God is more of a concept than a reality. Or think of this as well. When you gather with God's people, do you have an expectation that God's gonna move and actually do something? You know, Isaiah, it's a little bit funny, but one preacher said that Isaiah is at church, he's in the temple, and the last person he expected to see was God, and he's blown away. Do you expect to meet with God when you come here on a Sunday morning? Well, here's another sign. I have a lot of these. Sometimes we serve God for his blessings rather than just simply the fact that he is God and holy and righteous and beautiful in and of himself. Sometimes we are in it more for the blessings rather than the blesser. Here's another sign. Have you ever said this? I won't believe in a God who blank or you know someone like that. (laughs) Maybe you're here this morning and you're that way. You're kind of on the fence. I won't believe in a God, Pastor Rick, who does this or who allowed this. Well, what you're trying to do is fit God into your concept rather than God be the reality of your life. His glory dominating your life. If we're going to encounter God, it has to begin with God and his bigness. One of the best illustrations I heard about this is a very famous illustration from the 70s. There was a Christian teacher at a camp, and she said this, if the distance between the earth and the sun is, does anyone know how far that is? That's way more precise than I expected. 92.6 million miles, according to Terry's story. Good job. (laughs) So if the distance between the earth and the sun is 92.6 million miles, say that the thickness of this piece of paper represents that distance, okay? 92.6 million miles, thanks, Terry. The distance between the Earth and the nearest star would be a stack of these papers 70 feet high. Now, what galaxy are we in? The Milky Way galaxy. The diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of these papers 310 miles high. And yet, if you think of the vastness of the universe, our galaxy is like a speck of dust, and the vastness of our universe. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ holds the universe together by the word of his power, his pinky, so to speak. And then she asked a really good question, and I'm gonna ask you this too. If God is like that, is he the kind of being you ask to be your personal assistant? You know what I would love to do is just, let's just stop right now And for the next 10 minutes, let's just be in awkward silence as we think about the implications for our life and what that means. But if God is that big, that massive, and yet we say, God, bless my plans, do what I want to do, I won't believe in a God who does. No, Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. If he is so glorious, he should dominate our reality. So if we're going to focus, if we're going to behold God's glory and encounter God, it all begins with God, which takes me to my second movement. When you really encounter God, it's going to result in an inward movement which affects ourselves. Isaiah, in the presence of God, it shakes him to the core of his being. You know, I often wonder what we would do if God really showed up in this way, how would we react? Would we be casual or, God, could you hold still for a second while I take a selfie with you? You know, I mean, how would we react to this? But Isaiah, in the presence of greatness, he is undone. He says, In verse 5, woe to me, I'm cursed, I'm ruined, I should die. You see, when God becomes a huge reality in your life, it will rock your image to the core of your being. I think we understand this at a human level because when you meet a famous person, like a rock star or athlete or politician, you know, it does a couple things. It can inspire us towards greatness. Like, oh, I want to be like that person. If I could be like Mike, Mike Wilson, you know, that sort of thing. Or <laughs> it can really humble us and crush us in the presence of greatness. If you grow up in a small town like Bern and you're a really good athlete, and then you go away to college and play college athletics, it can be a little bit of a rude awakening, I'm guessing, because there's guys bigger and stronger and faster than you. Or if you're really good at music here in Bern, which is great, you can go away, go to New York City, get off the subway, And there's more talented musicians there in the subway, you know, with their case open playing than you are. And it's humbling in the presence of greatness. Or you may think you're really smart, go away to school, grad school, medical school, whatever, and realize, my goodness, when I went to seminary, I was blown away at the the level of people there from all over the world asking incredible questions that I didn't even know you could ask theologically. That's amazing. It was humbling. And it was good for me. Because it took the eyes off myself and realized it's not about me. You see, this is what you and I need more than anything. We need to take the eyes off ourselves and put them on God. And it's so simple, it's so easy, yet it's so difficult to apply every single day. But the only way we're going to get the eyes off ourselves is if we encounter God. You know, I hesitate to make this statement, but I'm guessing that more than at any other time in history, we are probably more focused on self than any time. Would you agree with that? I mean, there's the I generation, the iPhone, the iPod, the iPad, the I, 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 whatever. There's the selfie. I mean, you and I can't help but post what we're eating for crying out loud. Who cares? But we do that. <laughs> and our, We take a picture of our cup of coffee. It's about us. No offense, but by the way, if you do that. <laughs> but we're, we're so easily focused on Self. But let me tell you, if you are the center of your universe, if you are the most glorious being in your world, uh, I I feel bad for you. It's depressing. It's saddening. It's sickening. You are not meant to be the most glorious being in your world. I'm talking to me too. <laughs> a few days ago, we celebrated a holiday. What holiday was that? Valentine's Day. You know, somebody else or something else was also not meant to be the most glorious thing in your world. I mean, if you're in a dating relationship or you're married, your spouse was not meant to be the most glorious being in your world. They can't handle that pressure or expectation. The person you're dating was not meant to be that. Only God was meant to be the center of your reality. And if he's not, you're going to crush that other person. When you start to see this daily, it takes your eyes off yourself and it puts them where it was meant to be on God and his glory. And that is the best, that is the most refreshing, that is the most joyful way to live. Let's go to the third movement. When you have an encounter with God, you're drawn upward to God and then inward to take stock of your life, but then it moves you outward to the world. We'll skip verses six and seven for a second, but look at verse eight, God enlists Isaiah's for help, and Isaiah's like, here am I, send me. You see what propels Isaiah outward into mission is he encounters God first, it rocks his world, he can take his eyes finally off himself, and it pushes him outward for the kingdom of God. Did you catch what Isaiah's call is, by the way, his assignment in verse nine and following? Did you catch it? God is enlisting Isaiah to go, but you're not gonna be successful. Go and tell these people, you need to listen, but they're not gonna understand. You need to see, but they're not really going to perceive. Isaiah, you're going to make these people's hearts calloused, but I want you to do it anyway. How many of us would sign up for that? You know, what if I got up here next Sunday and said, you know, we have a a great volunteer opportunity. It's going to be really hard, take a lot of hours. We're not going to pay you. It's very difficult and dirty. No one's going to notice, very unfulfilling. You're not really going to be successful, but we want you to do it anyway to be faithful. Sign me up for that. <laughs> but that's kind of Isaiah's call here. You know, most of us, if we're honest, when we serve, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with this, when we serve, we often do it for what we can get out of it, for how it fulfills us or makes us feel or, or deals with our guilt or whatever. And those aren't necessarily bad things. But Isaiah, when he encounters God's glory, he's willing to take this very difficult assignment. He even says in verse 11 I mean, Isaiah's like, how long am I going to do this, Lord? And God's like, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. That's a difficult assignment. You know, can you imagine if we're the kind of people that are beholding God's glory often? Can you imagine how our volunteer sheets would be filled to capacity? We'd have people crawling over each other to help hold babies and change diapers in the nursery. (laughs) We'd have people, you know, signing up to greet and usher quickly. I'm not saying those are dirty jobs, by the way. I'm just... Our our volunteers would be overflowing. Can you imagine if we did this? You know, you might even call Brenda Hecker during the week, our chief managing officer, as Ben said. (laughs) You might even call her and say, Brenda, I want you to give me the most difficult job in the church that nobody wants to do that will get no attention. Sign me up for that. Can you imagine if we were a church that did that? And it's not going to come from just trying hard. It only comes when we start with beholding God's glory. It takes the eyes off ourselves so that we can go out into the world. It allows us to minister to the most difficult, needy people who can never pay us back or never make us fulfilled. The bottom line is you can't skip to this third movement. I can't just get up here and tell you to, to be on a mission for Jesus. It all be- begins with God's glory. The last movement, so we've been upward, inward, outward, and then I call this one crossword movement towards Jesus. One preacher said it like this In order to encounter God's glory, you need a God quake, which leads to a self quake, and then a world quake. But the only reason I would add to that we can do that is because Jesus quaked. If you look at verses six and seven, after Isaiah says he's ruined, the seraphim takes the live coal, that's fire, by the way, which often represented God's judgment in the Old Testament. And you can imagine Isaiah, as this seraphim has the coal and it's coming toward Isaiah, he probably thinks, okay, Lord, I'm done. I'm dead. But no, it comes to him in verse 7, touches his mouth, and the angel says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So how could Isaiah, in the presence of such holiness and glory and transcendence, not be destroyed? How? Well, he didn't know the full answer, but we do. The reason that he was not undone is because Jesus was undone. The reason that Isaiah was not cursed is because Galatians 3 says that Jesus Christ became a curse for us on the tree. I mean, think of what Jesus experienced in this curse. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he is, the writer of Luke says, he is sweating drops of what? Blood at what he's about to face. When he's on the cross becoming sin for us, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is literally becoming undone for our sin, even though he was sinless and didn't deserve it. We deserved it, he did it for us. The reason that you and I can have this upward, then inward, then outward movement is because at the, the center point of it all is the cross, which atones for our guilt, which takes away our sin, which we celebrated in the Lord's Supper. You see, Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, Jesus, centuries later, would be high and lifted up, but he would reign from a cross. John chapter 12, verse 41, talks how Isaiah, right here, actually saw Jesus' glory. Here in the Old Testament, he saw a glimpse of Jesus. So your assignment this week comes on this next slide. I love, love this verse. And Mike, you can come forward as we close I want you to read this out loud with me, 2 Corinthians three eighteen, out loud together. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. You see, here's, here's kind of a recipe. If we're gonna encounter and behold God's glory, it, says, it uses the word contemplate the Lord's glory. Uh, We have to focus on the Lord. And what that does, when we focus on God's glory, it transforms us into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I gave a really practical way last week. In the book nook, we have these little devotionals called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. It's short, but it helps us preach the gospel to ourselves daily because in the gospel, we see one of the most glorious things, the most glorious thing ever And as we contemplate that glory in Christ, it changes us. So would you stand with us and we'll pray. (coughs) Father, I thank you for just the wonderful people of God here this morning. Thank you for those who may be visiting. Even thank you for those, Lord, who may not know you. We're so glad they're here. We welcome them. Lord, I pray that you would take ourselves off the glory throne in our life. Take something else or someone else off it and put yourself there. I pray that we would realize how big and how vast and amazing you are, just like Isaiah did. And may it lead to us taking stock of our lives and being sent out to the world. Lord, I also pray this week that we would be focused on the glory of Christ on the cross, what he did for us. And that would transform us as we behold and contemplate the Lord's glory. Lord, may you do it. May you do the hard work of changing our hearts, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.